This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through 28. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need and was and hungered, he and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and did eat the showbread which is not lawful to eat but for the priests and gave also to them which were with him? And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Who is Jesus and why has he come? These are the questions that we are asking as we study the Gospel of Mark. And in these verses, in answer to the first question, who is Jesus, we see three things. Jesus is the Son of Man, Jesus is the Lord, and Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. In answer to the second question, why has he come, we see and this is the whole drift of this chapter, that he has come to give us freedom from legalism and its righteousness by work, by works, by bringing to us the gospel of grace. And he's come also in connection with that as the Lord of the Sabbath to fulfill the Sabbath and to bring us into the enjoyment of our eternal rest. So we have in verse 24 the fourth accusation in this chapter that the Pharisees lodge against Jesus. And this one they address directly to Jesus. Now here in verse 23, we're introduced to Jesus and the disciples walking in fields on the Jewish Sabbath. Matthew tells us that the disciples were hungry as they walked, and Mark tells us here that they plucked the grain of picking it from uh, the stalks. So it was obviously harvest time in the fall, later in the year. And on a trip like this, through the fields as they traversed from one place to another, the Jewish traveler didn't have a convenience store along the way to stop, and so they were allowed to eat from the fields of their fellow countrymen. And this was a way that God showed mercy to the needs of his people. You see that it's a matter of need, Jesus says, David did when he had need. David had need. The need was hunger. And God in his law gave an allowance for, for such need. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, When thou comest into thy neighbor's vineyard, then thou mayest eat grapes thy fill at thine own pleasure, but thou shalt not put any in thy vessel. And then verse 25 of Deuteronomy 23, When thou comest into the 
standing corn of thy neighbor or the standing grain, then thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. And you see what God allowed. God allowed them to eat for their need from the fields of the fellow countrymen as they traveled. What we see from that is what the disciples were doing here was not stealing and it was not trespassing. And that wasn't the problem either that the the Jewish leaders had with what they were doing. Their problem was that they saw this as work because the disciples did it on their Sabbath. And they wanted to indict Jesus and they wanted to indict his disciples for working, breaking the Sabbath. Let's try and understand a little bit their mindset, their thinking and their methodology that made them draw this conclusion. What the Pharisees and the Jewish lawyers had done uh, the Jewish teachers of the law, was taken each of the Ten Commandments and extracted from the Old Testament all the other requirements and fit them under each of the Ten Commandments. And then they had taken all those different things and in connection with real life drew out all the possible applications. And then with all those possible applications, they had drawn up a list of rules for daily conduct. And so they ended up with 630 or so commandments instead of just the 10. And 234 of those commandments had to do with Sabbath observance. Almost a half of their law had to do with what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day. And then each of those commandments is carefully explained in the Talmud so that there were 24 chapters containing the laws and the explanation of the laws for Sabbath observance, so that their Sabbath laws were something like the IRS tax code. One commentator points this out. There were Sabbath laws about wine, honey, milk, spitting, writing, and getting dirt off your clothes. Anything that might be contrived as work was forbidden. So on the Sabbath, the scribes were forbidden to carry their pens, The tailors were forbidden to carry their needles and the students forbidden to carry their books. To do so might tempt one to work. In fact, carrying anything heavier than a fig was forbidden on the Sabbath. If you threw what you were carrying into the air, it had to be caught with the same hand. To catch it with the other hand would be considered work. No insects could be killed. That would be considered hunting. No candle light or flame could be extinguished. No bathing was allowed since water might accidentally spill on the floor and wash the floor. No furniture could be removed, could be moved around in the house lest it leave a, a rut in the dirt which would be considered plowing. An egg could not be boiled and you couldn't leave an egg out in the sun or the hot sand either to cook. A radish could not be left in salt because it would become a pickle and pickling was work and so on. These were their Sabbath regulations. And now it's in that mindset that they come to Jesus here in verse 24 and say, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath that which is not lawful? Now, this had nothing to do with any Old Testament law or biblical law that was transgressed, but their man-made traditions that they had elevated to the level of and above Scripture. And according to their rabbinical laws, the disciples would have been guilty of reaping by picking the grain, of sifting by separating the husk and the shell, of threshing by rubbing the grain between their hands, of winnowing by throwing the husks, the chaff, into the air, and of preparing a meal by eating the grain after 
they had cleaned it. And what they had done, these Jewish leaders, was use their position to impose these things on the people as regulations. And Jesus says they placed burdens on the people too heavy to be carried, with no concern for the need and the hunger and the well-being of Jesus and his disciples here, but only a concern for protecting their petty regulations that belong to their hypocritical system of external religion. They come to Jesus with this question, and you see their hatred here and their pursuit. Notice, behold, verse 24. That means, Jesus, look, look, look what your disciples are doing. And there's one purpose, isn't there? They're, they're, they're out there to get Jesus. And this is attack is, is not so much on the disciples, but on Jesus himself permitting the disciples to break these laws. That's the accusation. And it fits with what we've been looking at earlier in the chapter. If they were truly religious, they wouldn't do this. And we don't do this. So they're not as religious as we are. They're not as spiritual as we are. And now Jesus gives a rather lengthy answer to that in four verses, verses 25, 26, 27, and 28. And we have in Jesus' answer here uh, a very profound explanation of the Sabbath and of Sabbath observance, which includes all the main elements or principles for the observance of the Sabbath and the application of the fourth commandment to our own lives. And what we see primarily here is that the Sabbath is not to be observed just by following a set of rules that you might extrapolate from the fourth commandment, but there is wisdom in the application of the principles, with the primary thing being the recognition that Christ is Lord, and the Sabbath is a day for us of blessing and advantage. In the first part of the answer, verses 25 and 26, Jesus allows on the Sabbath works of necessity. There are two main allowances for work on the Sabbath, works of necessity and works of mercy. And Jesus here gives the allowance for works of necessity in the next passage at the beginning of chapter 3, the allowance for works of mercy. Now, Jesus uh, tells here a familiar story from the Old Testament. Notice how he begins in verse 25. Have ye never read? Have ye never read? He begins with the Scriptures. And the Scriptures are the ultimate authority, not the words or the traditions of man. Have you never read, he says. And the story he tells is of David fleeing from Saul with a company of men, and he and his men come to the tabernacle, and they are hungry. And he asked the priest for food. There's no food except the showbread, which had been sanctified and placed on the table before the holy place in dedication to God. And according to the law of Moses, it was to be eaten by the priests only. And now Jesus' point here is that necessity creates the exception to the commandment. In David's case, the need, the necessity of hunger created the exception to the law concerning who could eat the showbread. And just as God in mercy allowed his people to eat from the the field of a fellow countryman when they were hungry, so God allowed David and his men to eat the sanctified bread of the tabernacle in their need. It's a very powerful argument. He appeals to Scripture. He uses the example of the revered King David, and he shows the folly of the forbidding 
of their law, that you couldn't eat like this on the Sabbath. So first, there's this argument based on necessity. That's wisdom in application of the Sabbath commandment. Not legalism, rule following, but wisdom. He continues his argument in verse 27 with a second consideration. Uh, There's kind of a pause, I think, between 26 and 27. He says, have you never read? He tells the story of David and need. And the Pharisees are silenced. And then he continues. Verse 27, he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. And here he gets at another failure in the thinking of the Pharisees with regard to the Sabbath, and even with regard to the entire law of God. Now the argument that Jesus gives is one of freedom and not bondage. The Sabbath is a gift for man. The idea of the Sabbath is rest, not rigor. It's freedom, not bondage. And Jesus takes the takes the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, back to the creation account. First man was made, and then God, after he had made man, instructed man to work in his care of the creation. And then following that, God created the Sabbath day, and he gifted it to man as a day of rest from his work. And that was for his physical health and the health of his body. But it was especially for the enjoyment of spiritual rest and worship, a day to enjoy life with God and to enjoy the works of God, what God had done for man. And God gave this rest to man, teaching him by this, that that it was not by his own labor and work that he would enter into rest and the rest of covenant life with God. But this was God's gift to him. And if we look at the Scripture, through the Scriptures, at the whole idea of Sabbath, and Sabbath means rest, we see in the Scripture that it's a description of our salvation in Jesus Christ, the rest that we have from the burden of sin and the, the, the requirements of obedience. Christ has accomplished our righteousness. And it's a, it's a, it's a picture also of heaven to come when we'll rest from the, the curse and its remaining effects so that Hebrews 4 speaks of the Rest that yet remains for the people of God. And you see the point here. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Man wasn't made to serve under the yoke of Sabbath rules and expectations, but the Sabbath was given to man as a day to enjoy the liberty and the peace and the blessedness that is his, that is ours in Jesus Christ and in life and fellowship with God. And this was what was missing in in these 234 thou shalt not stipulations of the Jewish law, so that the people dared not raise a finger or exhale lest they broke one of the commandments. Don't you see the freedom here that Jesus gives to his disciples? They walk in the fields, take the grain, and eat, freed from these legalistic requirements, not under the bondage of legalism and the law as a way righteousness. The third part of Jesus' answer is in verse 28, therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And this is the most striking part of Jesus' argument. Really it it seals the argument. It's like the nail in the coffin. The whole dispute in this chapter has been about the authority and the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is he that he says and does these things? 
And Jesus here asserts both his identity and his authority. He is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man becomes his his most used way of referring to himself. It's not simply a reference to his humanity, but it's taken from the Old Testament prophecy of Daniel, which speaks of the Son of Man coming towards the Ancient of Days, receiving a crown and receiving dominion over all the kingdoms and nations of the earth. This is the exalted, the reference to the exalted Christ and an unashamed claim on his part to be the God-sent Messiah who would be crowned. Yes, he's human, born of a woman, a son of man, but he is the anointed of God, the Messiah. And the Son of Man, he says, is Lord also of the Sabbath. And really, he adds here to the repertoire of his authority. He's already demonstrated that he's the Lord over the disease, that he's the Lord who has the authority to forgive sins, that he's the Lord over fasting and religious practices. And now he says, I'm the Lord also of the Sabbath. And really, he's saying this, I have the authority over the Sabbath, not you. That authority is vested in this, that I am the creator of the Sabbath. He goes back to the beginning. I've come to fulfill the Sabbath. I am the rest giver. And I've come to bring my people into rest, to free them from bondage. This is my day, not your day. And I won't allow you to change it from being a day of liberty and freedom and joy in God to a day of bondage and servitude and condemnation. And you see here a kind of jealousy, protectiveness on his part of the Sabbath. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. And that really takes us to the to the bigger, the overriding concern of Jesus here, and that is to address the legalism of the Pharisees. There's no righteousness, there's no peace, there's no rest, there's no salvation in works. And true spirituality is not measured by conformity to an external set of standards. The Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Well, that brings us to the application. I have four points here. First, this, that the application is not this, that we dismiss the Sabbath commandment altogether. That's what some have done with this passage. And they argue from this passage that Sabbath keeping and Sabbath observance are just a part of the Old Testament ceremonial law and that Jesus establishes himself as Lord of the Sabbath and by that has the authority to dismiss the Sabbath. But from the passage itself, there's a very strong argument against that thinking. These three things. First, Jesus here does not dismiss the commandments themselves, the law itself, but he has issue here with man-made impositions on that law. Then second, Jesus speaks here of the necessity of the Sabbath for man when he says the Sabbath was made for Man, that's the necessity of the Sabbath. It's a blessing and it's a gift and it's something that we need for our mental and our physical and our spiritual well-being. Even in paradise, in the original creation, before the, the fall into sin, Adam needed the Sabbath. And we need the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for us, gifted to us by God. And then third, Those final words of Jesus in the chapter, he's Lord also of the Sabbath. Those words should give us pause. Instead of the abolishing of the Sabbath, Jesus is saying here, my lordship over your life and over every aspect of your life, 
My lordship over your life extends also to the Sabbath day. This is the Lord's day. Not let's do away with the Sabbath, but the Sabbath now is the Lord's day. We could say some more things about that, the Lord's day, which is now the first day of the week in the New Testament. And you see that in the pattern of the disciples and the New Testament church and even Jesus gathering with his disciples on the first day of the week after his resurrection. But the point is that the Sabbath day, the Christian Sabbath, belongs to the Lord. And Jesus says, submit to me, give yourself to me on the Sabbath day. If we dismiss the Sabbath day, we miss the blessings of the Sabbath day. And Jesus emphasizes the blessings here when he says the Sabbath is made for man, for the advantage of man, for your profit. Not for your bondage, but for your profit. So the first application is not this, that we dismiss the Sabbath day. The second application is this, that we should find the Sabbath day to be a a day of delight and of joy in God, not a burden, not a day of rule-keeping, but a day of enjoyment in the freedom and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Certainly, obedience to the fourth commandment is contrary to our nature and it's contrary to our culture which are self-serving. And when Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, he doesn't mean here the Sabbath is for you to serve all your self-interests. No, he means it's for your spiritual profit, that God intends our spiritual good in giving to us the Sabbath. And the good is that we know God and that we glorify God. This is man's chief end, to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And it's the child of God who learns to delight in God and to rest in the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and to be enriched by the Word of God and to enjoy worship and singing and praise on the Sabbath day. That child of God doesn't think of the Sabbath as restrictive, but it's something that we look forward to with joy and anticipation and expectation. And, And in a similar way, we have a hope of the eternal Sabbath to come because there's a freedom that's ours in Jesus Christ. And third, as a point of application, let's be very careful that we not turn every personal practice or every preference that we have into a principle for others. The principles are laid down in the Word of God. And the danger is that we set up our own practices as principles and requirements for others. And the danger is not only that we do that, but that then our view of the Christian life becomes very works-based, Pharisee-like, comparative. And it goes back to a question that I asked at the end of the sermon last week. How do you know that you're trusting in your works, that you're living a works-based Christian life? Well, you know by whether you're always comparing yourself to others and saying something like the disciple, like, like the Pharisees here. Well, why do they do that on the Sabbath? We don't do that. One commentator says we are all like the Pharisees when we create rules that we can keep instead of obeying the rules that God gives us, which are much more difficult to follow. So let's be careful not to fall into this practical legalism. The Pharisees had the idea that they had arrived, but they missed it altogether. They thought that by keeping all their regulations, they had got it. But God wasn't pleased at all. The humble believer says, I haven't arrived. It's not on account of my doing. And that brings me to the final application 
And it's really the opposite to trusting in yourself. It's this, trusting Christ and his righteousness, not your own. Trust in his perfect obedience to the law, not your law-keeping. Trust in his sacrifice and payment for our sin, not your pacifying God by your good works. Don't look at what you've done, but look to Christ. You see, the Pharisees were enemies of the gospel of grace by their establishment of legalistic requirements. We have to see the Phariseeism in our own hearts, turn away from our own works and righteousness and comparative living, and recognize our failings, that our best is tainted with sin. We haven't arrived, and we need the mercy of Christ every day. The gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, the Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed Churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.